Back in 2007, there was a construction, construction worker, a 50-year-old man named Wesley Autry, who was taking his two daughters to school in a large city. And their usual trek to school actually had it to where he had to take his daughters on the subway to their school. And while they were waiting on a train to come by, they noticed a man standing nearby them on the platform began to have seizures and actually lost his balance and fell down into the tracks. And as the story goes, and it is a true story, almost at the same time the man fell below the tracks or into the tracks, the rumble of the train began to be heard coming through the tunnels. Wesley Archer, without thinking, jumped down into the tracks and actually pushed the man further down because he knew he did not have time to actually pull this man who was having seizures back up before the trains arrived or the train arrived. And so he pushed the man down between the tracks and laid on top of him while the subway came and rolled directly over them inches above their head. Of course, everyone watching the scene began to just scream and shriek and cry and wonder what was going on quite literally below the subway. And finally, the train stopped and the noise began to dissipate a little bit. And the man, Wesley, screamed up, tell the daughters their dad is okay. The transit authority arrived and turned the power off and pulled the two men back to safety. Wesley Autry actually didn't want any kind of recognition whatsoever. In fact, he simply told his girls, let's go on to school. And the only regret he had on that day was the hat he was wearing for work got grease on it below the tracks. May I suggest to you that before that construction worker jumped, he did not ask, where did you go to college? He did not ask, what neighborhood did you grow up in? He didn't ask, would you please tell me your country of origin? He didn't ask, how much do you make? He didn't ask anything. But maybe he gave the right answer to a question that led to one of the greatest stories ever told. And who is my neighbor? You and I know that that story that Jesus told in answer to that question is as old as Luke chapter 10 and is as new as this morning's newspaper. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. In fact, if you'll keep your Bible open to Luke chapter 10, you'll have everything we're going to say right there in front of you except for possibly a couple of verses in in a few minutes. That question who is my neighbor, leads to this famous story that most of us know. But I think you've heard it said before that sometimes the parts of the Bible we know the best are the ones we need to go back and re-examine to make sure we fully understand them and to make sure really that we're living them as well. But we know that that question, when it was asked, was not asked out of a pure motive. Luke chapter 10 and verse 29 tells us that the lawyer with whom Jesus was speaking asked that question, who is my neighbor? But he asked it to justify himself. But I want you for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of those who might have been looking on this conversation. We know a lot of background information because the Holy Spirit tells us this man asked the question in order to justify himself. 
But just for a moment, consider if you were watching this conversation between the lawyer and Jesus and consider the fact that if you were watching that, you would think that this lawyer had everything going for him. In fact, at least three ways you would think that was true. First of all, you would think that because he asked a wonderful question up in verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's not a greater question that could ever be asked. I mean, I'll tell you, as a preacher... How wonderful would it be for someone to walk in my office, just knock on the door completely off the street and say, Hey, preacher, what do I have to do to go to heaven? That'd be a wonderful beginning to a Bible study, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you be glad if someone asked you that at work instead of having to go hither and yon to get there? If they just asked that question, if you were watching that conversation, you would think, Wow, this guy asked the best question you could ask. And then when Jesus turned it back on him by answering his question with a question, you know, What's the law say? You would also think this man had it all together because he gave the right answer. He knew the law. Out of those 613 commandments in the Old Testament law, which one's the greatest? Love God with all you've got and love neighbor. Does that not sound awfully familiar? When Jesus himself was asked that question, this is the same answer he gave. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This man knew whereof he spoke. He knew the law well enough to know the essence of the law comes down to loving God with everything that we have and loving neighbor as self. And so if you were watching that, you would think, wow, he knows the law. He knows whereof he speaks. And, And it seems to be, again, looking from the outside in, there seems to be a heart behind it. Love God. Love neighbor. And then it would seem as if, as if this guy had it all together by the response Jesus gives. If I may paraphrase, then go do it. Just, just go live that way. You've given the right answer? Go do those things. If you were looking on the outside, you would think, wow. This teacher, this rabbi is saying, this guy's got it all together. Don't you wish at some point that this account in Luke chapter 10 ended right there? If you were standing there on that day, you probably would think that's where the conversation ends. A great question, a a good answer, and the, the teacher saying, then go do it. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. And so he pressed his luck just a little bit by asking that question then, and who is my neighbor? And with that as the backdrop, Jesus tells a simple story that has literally changed the world. Even people who do not believe in the Bible call those who do good deeds good Samaritans. That language has infiltrated culture since the time Jesus told that story. And this particular story is the backdrop behind countless short stories, plays, movies, and on and on it goes. Whether they actually use biblical terminology or or biblical characters or not, the thought process behind this story Jesus tells is the backdrop behind a huge amount of entertainment and stories that you and I see all the time. The story has been told and paraphrased more times than we can ever imagine. And all it really is is a simple story about what mercy really looks like. That's all it really is. I hope we all know the story of the Good Samaritan well enough that we're not going to go through every last detail in that story this morning. But what I want to do this morning with you as we study these words from Christ is consider three things we see in the Samaritan himself that show us what true mercy is, what it looks like. 
And then with those three things in the back of our mind, as we conclude our lesson a little while, maybe not a really little while, but a little while, I want us to think about something from this story you may have never noticed before. But what does mercy look like? I think the Samaritan shows us at least three things. Number one, mercy does not play favorites. Remember the question that sets up the story. Who is my neighbor? Have you ever wondered what answer the lawyer thought he was going to get? I know the Bible doesn't reveal that to us, but I've sometimes wondered, what did he think Jesus was going to say? Certainly it's all speculation. But could it possibly be he was simply expecting Jesus to say something like, you're a Jew, so your neighbors are the Jews. Or maybe even something even more generic than that. Just the people you live by or the people you work with. Just the people you're around. It's whatever. He's probably expecting some type of simple answer. The people you live next door to or your cultural people, the Jews, the people you have a, a religious heritage with, a cultural heritage with. But Jesus builds the story. And if you ever consider the fact that as Jesus builds this story, he disappoints the man who asked the question not once, not twice, but three times. Of course, the priest enters the story, and he disappoints the man. We would automatically think when Jesus said a priest comes by, that's going to be the hero of the story. Here's a religious leader. Here's someone who would have looked religious and known the law. He walks and sees this man who's, let's be very kind, just down on his luck. It's a whole lot worse than that. But he sees a bad situation, and the text says he passed by on the other side. Literally, it reads, he passed opposite from. You want to put it in modern terminology? He went all the way to the passing lane. Okay, He went as far over as he could get and rode the shoulder to get away from this guy. He passed opposite from where this man was. What a disappointment. Here's someone who enters the store. He's going to be the hero. He's a religious leader. This has to be the hero. No, he's not. Well, maybe then Jesus is just saying something about priests because now a Levite enters the story. This has to be the hero. The Levites, of course, were the ones chosen from the Old Testament law to take care of the temple, to take care of worship furnishings and that sort of thing. Maybe he's got some more time than the priest does. He has to be the hero of the story. But verse 32 tells us, He came to the place and saw the man. It is possible from that reading that the Levite literally walked directly up to him. That's not necessary from the text, but it's possible that he literally walked up to him, figured out what was going on, and then the same terminology is used. He passed by on the other side. Again, literally, he passed opposite from where this man was. So we got a priest who disappoints. You've got a Levite who disappoints. Now, before you go to the person, notice the first word of verse 33. But, okay, here comes the hero. The man who's listening to the story and those standing around realize now the priest is not the hero, the Levite is the hero, but who's going to be the hero? In his mind, it's got to be a lawyer, right? It's got to be a scribe. It's got to be a Pharisee. It's got to be somebody who's religious, who's culturally connected, who, who understands what's going on, but a Samaritan. And may I suggest to you that to this lawyer... The Samaritan disappoints simply because the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Not because of what he does, but by the simple fact that he's in the story at all and that he becomes the hero 
of this account. That's a disappointment for this lawyer. He wasn't looking for that kind of answer. He was looking for a Jew, a Jewish leader, possibly a priest, possibly a lawyer, possibly a scribe, someone. But it had to be unexpected. And it's in verse 33 that we get our title for our lesson. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Some translations have, he had mercy. That's the word we chose for our lesson title. He did not pass by on the opposite side. He did not pass opposite from. He came to the place, and may I suggest to you, the only thing that moved was within him. But this was a foreigner. This was someone who was different in religion and very different in culture. John 4 and verse 9 simply tells us the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And may I suggest to you that you could flip that verse around. It would be just as true. The Samaritans didn't really mind that the Jews had no dealings with them. But folks, mercy does not see those things. Mercy doesn't show partiality. Mercy doesn't play favorites. The word for compassion or the word mercy here, if you want to really have fun this afternoon, enjoy saying this word over and over and over again. It's the word splognizomai. Now that's just fun. I'm not trying to show off. That's just fun. Splognizomai. It's a word that literally means to be moved within your bowels. Now before you get grossed out, Remember that this is not a 21st century American story. This is a 1st century Middle Eastern story. And they believed that our emotions were seated within that part of the body. By the way, before we think they're idiots, we talk about our emotions being seen in our heart. What's wrong with us, right? That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But we still talk this way, do we not, sometimes? I felt that in the pit of my stomach. Really? Our emotions aren't really seated in that part of our body, but we've carried that over in our language to that. That's what the text says this man did. He was moved. Let's just say what it was. He was moved within himself. That's what moved. So this man felt something, and he didn't ask questions. May I suggest to all of us that when we are moved in that way, Things like skin color, gender, ethnic background, wealth or lack thereof, education or lack thereof, those things no longer matter. They don't matter. Because I am moved because this is a person. This is a human being. I don't see those things the way other people might see those things. Folks, if I only have mercy on those who look like me, is it really mercy? If I only have mercy on those who treat me in a certain way, is it really mercy? If when I see someone in need, the first thing that I see are the externals, skin color or where they come from, is that really mercy? Mercy doesn't play favorites. By the way, aren't you glad that God's mercy doesn't play favorites? He shows no partiality. He doesn't see as man sees because God doesn't see the outside. He looks at the inside, as Samuel said in the Old Testament. He who loves the Lord aright... No soul of man can worthless find. All be precious in his sight, since Christ on all has shined. Mercy shows no favorites. Number two, briefly, I'll also suggest to you from this story that mercy benefits the other person. The mercy that the Samaritan felt led him to action. And before we get to the the big actions that we talk about often, I want you to see how verse 34 begins, because it's quite simple 
But it's profound in what we're told at the beginning of 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Now, before you go any further as to what he did, just consider those words. Have you ever thought about why did the priest and or the Levite not do something similar? This is not that difficult. He basically dressed the wounds. He, he put a Band-Aid on, okay, if you want to think of it that way. He cleaned the wound and put a Band-Aid on. Now, maybe the priest and the Levite didn't have those things with them. Okay, that's possible. But did they not have time? Did they not have maybe clothing they could have taken a piece of and tied a tourniquet or clotted up a wound or something along those lines? At the very least, they could have given the man a coat to lay in comfort. Even if the priest and the Levite had not done everything that the Samaritan ends up doing and simply lent a hand or spent a few moments with him, they wouldn't be the villains of the story. We would look at them and say they did what they could, but they didn't. Instead, they went literally opposite from the opportunity when they saw this man. And in fact, they left him worse off than when they arrived because he was, the text tells us, he was left for dead and now he's probably closer to that point. But the Samaritan does what he could in the moment. We don't know why he's carrying these things with him, why he has these things to dress a wound. But it's very possible that he needed them. We're told in verse 33 that he was on a journey. But there may be a hint earlier in the story about why this man would have carried all this stuff. Back up in verse 30, you remember the story begins by saying that this man was traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then he falls among thieves and all these things happen to him. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho was not a nice, safe, four-lane interstate highway. It was an awful trip. It was a quickly descending trip, about 3,000 feet downward as far as uh, sea level in a very short number of miles. And along the way, it was not a straight shot. It was curvy. It was filled with uh, rocky crags and caves. In fact, H. Leo Bowles in his commentary on Luke says, This road to Jericho was through a narrow, deep ravine with holes, caves, and hiding places for robbers. Those who heard Jesus tell this story, when he mentioned this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, their ears would have perked up. They know what road he's talking about. It's the road you don't want to take, and you for sure don't want to take it alone, and you even more for sure don't want to take it alone if you are a Samaritan. Because quite literally, you're in enemy territory. That's probably why he's carrying this stuff to dress a wound, because he thinks it's very possible I'll be dressing my own. I'll be taking care of my cuts, my skint knees. But now, here's one who's hurting. And instead of benefiting myself with these items, I'm going to benefit him. And more than that, before I, I do that, I, I'm not going to stop for a second and, and call out to everybody, everybody look what I'm getting ready to do. I want to be in the press tomorrow morning. I want to make sure everybody knows. what He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. None of this was to his own benefit. It was all to the benefit of the one who was hurting. Mercy benefits the other person. You and I may gain something from showing mercy. In fact, we will because we'll feel better about ourselves. But that's not the point of mercy. The point of mercy is we are so moved within ourselves that we want to benefit that other person. And tied to that, number three, 
true mercy also sacrifices. What makes this Samaritan stand out even more are the lengths he goes to. It's remarkable what all he does to show mercy for this hurting man. He, he doesn't just stop at those things that happened, if he please, on sight. Oh, that, that would be enough if he had just taken care of him there on the side of the road, binding and taking care of the wounds. But instead, he goes so much farther. I've often wondered how, much, how the lawyer was listening to this. Going, really? This guy would actually do that? Starting in the middle of verse 34, We're told that he set him on his own animal, (coughs) brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. There are three things this man does to sacrifice, only two of which will be on the screens. The the first is this idea of of giving up his animal, letting the man ride on his animal. On this trip, the the man who was making the journey would have, the Samaritan, excuse me, would have either been on the animal, or walking beside the animal because the animal had been carrying packages and bedding and that sort of thing. It's not any longer. Now a hurting man has to be on that animal. And so either the Samaritan who wasn't walking now is walking, or he's walking and carrying things he shouldn't have been carrying, but he gives that up so this hurting man doesn't have to walk and stumble all the way to the end. More than that, we're also told that he, he gave this amount of money, two denarii. You and I, if you use denarii today, please you know, let me know because I'd like to see one. But denarii basically simply means a, day, a day's wage for a common laborer. So two days' wages for a common laborer. Now, I don't know what you make or anything else, but how would you like to take your salary, divide it by 365, and give two days of that for somebody you've never met and who's supposed to be an enemy? Really? By the way, Wayne Jackson, his New Testament commentary, suggests that this amount of money the man gave was enough to take care of an innkeeper's bill for three weeks. That's a sacrifice. The one that's not on the screens is a very simple phrase, he took him to an inn and took care of him. Have you ever wondered what that looked like? Did this man sit up all night? And when the man was groaning, dress a wound? Did he run back to the innkeeper and get some more water because the man was dry in his throat? Did, did he have to keep, I'm not trying to be gross or over the top, but the man was left half, you know, for dead. Did he have to keep wiping blood away? Did he have to redress wounds? Did he have to call for a physician? He took care of him. And then when he leaves, he goes, whatever else needs to be paid, I'll I'll take care of that bill. I'm going to keep taking care of him, even though physically I can't be here any longer. It's amazing. It's utterly amazing. You see, mercy is more than a feeling. It takes sacrifice to really show mercy. Now, let me say this. Sometimes we read this account, we read similar passages in Scripture, and we know that as Christians we're to be helping We know that we're to be showing compassion or showing mercy. And sometimes we get overwhelmed because we look at the world around us and everybody has problems. Everybody has things that we could help with, that we could be involved in, that we we reach out, we, we see commercials for starving children and we see missionaries making reports that we could help with and it becomes overwhelming. How in the world could we possibly help every single person who's ever hurting? That's not what the New Testament teaches, although that's where our heart should be to want to help. Remember Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, where Paul said, As you have opportunity, do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That principle helps us balance this out. 
Sometimes we don't know about an opportunity. We're not held accountable for that. If I don't know that someone is hurting, I can't help. But I also would suggest to you that the sacrifice we make when we do know an opportunity takes different forms. Sometimes the sacrifice someone makes when you're hurting, when someone you love is hurting, sometimes the sacrifice a person makes you never see because it is hours spent on their knees beside their bed praying for you or praying for that loved one of yours. You never see it. But that person is sacrificing time and sacrificing their mental energy and their fervency in your behalf. Sometimes it is a sacrifice financially to, to give someone money or to give someone a gift card or, or whatever else is needed. Sometimes it's a sacrifice of, of our talents and abilities. We, we make extra food and take it or we, we send cards because we have that ability. We spend more and more because we know this person or this family is hurting. But the, the point I'm trying to make is simply this. We don't need to overwhelm ourselves with, can I take care of everything where everybody on the planet is hurting? No, but when I have an opportunity, what sacrifice am I going to make? And let me flip that around for a moment. If I'm the one who's hurting, I don't need to compare this person did this and this person didn't, therefore person A is better than person B. I want to look at the good in people and see there are people who sacrifice in a myriad of different ways, some very privately, some that I'll never know, but they sacrifice in my behalf. I know and have known elders of the Lord's church who have spent quite literally hours on their knees praying for people who are sick, hurting, and then get lit up because they didn't make enough visits or send enough gift cards, but they have sacrificed hours on behalf of someone or or a group of people. I want to think the best and assume that my brothers and sisters are sacrificing for me when I hurt. Whether it's public, private, known, unknown, financial, talent, time, whatever. But when I see someone hurting... I need to sacrifice, whether it's my own time, my own prayer, my own money, whatever it happens to be. True mercy sacrifices. That's what makes this man stand out. As I said near the beginning of our time, many of us know this story very well. I understand that. In fact, the Good Samaritan is one of the first Bible stories most of us probably know. It's children's books, it's vacation Bible school material, it's Bible school material. We we use it to teach small children the idea of loving others and and trying to encourage others and all those sorts of things. That's wonderful. But I mentioned to you also that I want to show you something. You may may have noticed this. You may think, Adam, you're an idiot if you've never seen this before. But it's something that you may have never noticed about this text before. We, of course, call this story the Good Samaritan. I've never really heard it called anything else. Have you? I mean, we, we know it constantly in fact if you've got an english standard version of the bible right above it it says the parable of the good samaritan maybe at the head of your page the king james it might say jesus tells the good samaritan or something like that but if you read all this text from verse 25 all the way through verse 37 guess what he is never called in this text it never says he's good never Not a single time is that actually found in the text. Jesus never says, a good Samaritan. No. The the man at the end, when Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? He does not say, the good Samaritan. It's just never found. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to call him that. 
But I want you to just point this out to you. We sometimes sing a song, God is so good. Why do we sing that about our God? Oh, there's a million different reasons, right? But one of those reasons is because of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Where we're told that those of us who were dead in our sins, he made alive. And in that same verse, he did that because he is a God who is rich in mercy. The reason we call this man the Good Samaritan is because true mercy is always good. It's always good. And so the question that the lawyer asked that sets all this up was really the wrong question. He asked, who is my neighbor? And in asking that question, he got this extended answer that I'm sure he never expected. I'm sure he didn't expect a story, much less the actual answer that he gets. Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story, but then you remember he returns the question with another question. Which proved to be a neighbor? Notice the change in question. It is not who is my neighbor. It's which one proved to be a neighbor. Now, I've heard it said many times that this lawyer is so hurt by the story that he can't bring himself to use the word Samaritan. I get that. He doesn't say the Samaritan. But may I also suggest to you he actually gave the right answer? Maybe he should have said Samaritan. Actually brought himself to utter those words. The Samaritan is the hero of the story. But he does give the right answer. The one who showed him mercy. Literally, the one who acted the movement within himself. And what's Jesus' response? You go and do likewise. In a long, long ago, a traveler came down the road to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and left him dying from many a blow. A priest passed by on the other side. He had no time to spare. A Levite glanced at the wounded man but left him lying there. A human being beaten and robbed and left by the road to die. And others content to have it so and willing to pass him by. But lo, another traveler came, a man of a hated race. He came to the victim's side and grief and pity were in his face. He bathed and bound the bleeding wounds of the man by the side of the road, and on his beast of burden placed a very different load. And then to the end there slowly moved that tiny caravan, the wounded man and the little beast and the good Samaritan. His time and his strength and his money too the good Samaritan gave, that he might from a cruel death that day his needy neighbor save. And my prayer is that I may be like the man who mercy showed in a long ago on the bloody way to the man by the side of the road. In 2007, a 50-year-old construction worker jumped into a subway track to save a man that I'm quite sure he didn't know. And before he jumped, he did not ask, tell me your education level, tell me your background, tell me all. Tell me all. No, here's a person who's hurting I don't know that person at all. I just found the story and filed it away and thought I might use it one of these days and 
It worked for this sermon, quite frankly. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 10. And when he said a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody knew that road, everybody knew the dangers, but he didn't really identify the people. It was just a guy and a Samaritan. That's all, that's all it is. And a priest, not a named priest, just a priest. And a Levite, not, not a Levite Bob, just, just Levite. It's, these are just, just people. It's just, it's just a story. But it's a story that's changed the world. Because Christians don't look at externals. Christians see needs. We are moved within ourselves, And we go and do likewise. I don't ask, did you grow up here? I don't ask, where'd you go to school? I don't ask, how much money do you make? I don't ask, what neighborhood do you live in? I don't ask, where'd you grow up going to church? I see someone made in the image of God. And hopefully with the same mercy that sent my Lord to the cross, we go and do likewise. You see... Mercy doesn't show any favoritism. God shows no partiality. Mercy benefits the other person. We're saved because of God's mercy. Mercy sacrifices. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We are rarely more like our Father than when we stop asking questions and start helping people. And I pray that you and I will see opportunities and simply do the two simplest words in Scripture, do good. Because that's what our Lord would do. Do good this morning are you a Christian are you following that one who would send his son out of his mercy so that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins he could make you alive again because he's rich in mercy he'll save you if you will simply turn from sin based upon your faith in his son confess that son as savior and lord and then be immersed baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. At that point, your sins are washed away because God is merciful and he will forgive. Maybe this morning as a Christian, you, you realize whether it's showing mercy or something else, there's something in your life that's causing you not to live the way that you need to live as a Christian. And you want to change that. You want God to forgive you. You want us to pray with you and encourage you. We, we know of no greater honor than for you to ask us to be with you in prayer. And we would love to do that. If you'll come while we stand and while we sing.